from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy filling in from New Jersey for the vacationing Joel McCower. On this week's edition, a playbook for public-private partnerships. Why European manufacturers are sharing industrial resources. How chief digital officers are aiding and abetting the clean energy transition and why more fleet operators are evaluating electric trucks and vans. We're getting charged up this week on 350. It's May 4th, 2018. Welcome to the Green Biz 350 podcast. Our co-host this week is Green Biz Director of Strategic Programs, Shauna Rappaport, Joining me virtually from the Green Biz headquarters at 350 Frankagawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. Hello, Shauna. Hello, Heather. It's so good to talk to you. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Virtually, that is. <laughs> I know both of us have been out and about this week. So I want to start with you. You tell me. What, what were you uh, looking at? Fill me in on your reconnaissance mission. Yeah, well, yesterday I had the good fortune of spending my morning at the beautiful Autodesk Gallery. Autodesk has been a partner of Verge actually since its inception, and they have this exquisite gallery in the Embarcadero in San Francisco, and they hosted this really interesting event called Harnessing Technology to Advance the Sustainable Development Goals. And it was a partnership, actually, it's part of a broader partnership in which they are involved called 2030 Vision. And I had heard of it, but now have since then had the opportunity to dive deeper. And it's really interesting. It's a it's a new partnership, sort of a cross-sector collaboration designed to really connect business, NGOs, governments um, around how to really harness technology to realize the UN Sustainable development goals. Um, it's head up by ARM, which is a large multinational corporation that I had not heard of, but it turns out they actually create many of the microchip processors that um, are already in our computers, in our phones, going to be undergirding the trillion connections of the Internet of Things. Um, so they're leading this effort in partnership with the UN Global Compact, UNICEF, um, our partners at the consultancy Sustainability. Um, and it was just, it was a really interesting conversation sort of talking about, obviously, the, the meta opportunity. Of course, there's huge social and, and environmental opportunities, but there's a huge commercial opportunity in realizing the SDGs, $12 trillion in revenue and cost savings Per year, they say. Again, that's $12 trillion uh, every year until 2030. But digital technology alone um, has is a $2.1 trillion opportunity. And so it was a lot of just a really interesting conversation about um, what it takes to, to enable the kind of partnerships and cross-sector collaboration to unlock the, the, the commercial as well as the social and environmental opportunities. Yeah, so I love that word opportunity because it came up a lot um, at the conference I was at this week. It was a a summit um, related to the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. So for those of you who don't know what that is, it's sort of the effort um, by the G20 and the finance um, board there and all the various uh, committees and bodies that on that massive uh, economic organization. It's, it's the sort of effort to get sustainability uh, metrics and reports and, and uh, information more deeply embedded into the sort of financial disclosures of, of big companies. So like the traditional stuff, the 10Ks, the 
the statements that every company has to make um, each quarter and each year with respect to its risks and opportunities, um, because that's actually was a big theme of this this particular event. Um, it was all about scenario analysis and planning, which was fascinating, Shauna, because um, these companies, which included our friends at JetBlue, um, NRG was there, General Motors was there, um, and they were talking about how um, the sustainability teams are teaching the risk managers, the the credit folks, the um, uh, you know the various business teams around their companies to look at things like um, planning for climate change and and in developing new strategies for dealing with it, how they could be um, actual opportunities for the company and not just like, ugh, this huge risk over here that we got to kind of like disclose because we're going to get in trouble legally and so forth. So it was a fascinating event over at the um, Bloomberg headquarters of Mike Bloomberg has been instrumental in getting this effort together. So that was uh, where I was. I'm embroiled in, in, in deeply embedded in financial <laughs> de- declarations, but it was quite a fascinating day for, for me well, as well. Just quickly, one thing I'm noticing actually as a, you know, sort of a cross-cutting theme between both of these events that we've participated in is sort of this theme of, 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 of um, embedding and, and like deeply embedding into the heart of organizations. And yes, it's the opportunity lens, moving beyond challenges, seeing the evolving the framing. But what I think is really interesting is like, you know, this was a conversation at the, at the SDG event. They were talking about the tech sector and how even, you know, especially here in the Silicon Valley in San Francisco, there's sort of this idea, this mentality, like, especially young people, millennials, my generation, they're, they're going to the Valley. They're saying, I'm going to go work in tech, make a lot of money. And then I'm going to go work on what I think matters and has a positive benefit to the world. And, you know, I think to a large extent, many companies do see the SDGs or see these kinds of financial reporting as like, well, first we're going to focus on our bottom lines. And then, you know, these are nice to do's. And I think the key, the key piece here is that actually flipping that mentality on its head and recognizing the extent to which putting these efforts at the center as the core lens through which we're understanding business strategy and actually is what's going to define leaders um, in a in sort of new new markets and a new economy. Yeah, it's funny. Mike Bloomberg actually tied this disclosure and, the, the, and what you're talking about back to the, the potential for big companies to attract millennials. Mm-hmm. So it's full circle, right? If you show that your organization is doing something that's impactful for the world in a good way, um, you're going to get better people to want to join it. Um, you'll have better, you know, better diversity, and you'll have um, just a much richer and um, stronger company as a result. Absolutely. And now, I think it's time for the week in review. So I'd like to kick off our Week in Review section with a story written by Katie Fahrenbacher, our chief uh, analyst on transportation issues. And she was at a conference in uh, Long Beach, California this week, the ACT Expo Fleet Industry Conference, um, where there was a, a fascinating report released by the North American Council for Freight Efficiency um, about just what it will take for for delivery vans, for buses, for cabs, you know, big semi trucks to go electric. Um, and I think um, this this particular report did a good job of setting up the fact that it's really not an all of the above, right? It's going to be different um, scenarios for for fleets that will go electric. So 
as an example, like a medium-duty urban delivery van that is, has a pretty predictable route, maybe 50 to 100 miles, um, they could go electric pretty quick. And you, you do see a lot of work, um, you know, anecdotally from UPS. Um, I know DHL has a really big focus on that as well. And they are actually, both of those companies are investing in their own development of electric um, uh, vans and so forth to, to, to pick up those routes. But the semis, uh, the big, massive uh, trucks you see on highways taking things cross-country, that, um, I think they call those class eight, seven and eight, um, big, big, big loads, heavy, heavy loads. Those um, probably are going to go much later. Like they, the cost, the cost equation to take parts, you know, parts of your fleet electric, um, aren't really going to be in place until like 2025 to 2030. So, I found um, this to be like a great sort of grounding report where it, it should help fleet operators just, you know, start looking at their own. Uh, their own trucks and vans in a different way and thinking about where they want, might want to make their first electric investments. Just curious, anything, any key takeaways that you have from that one? Well, I think Sean? that was, I think it was a great, great synopsis, Heather. And, you know, one thing that struck me at the very end, I think it was a line or two, but, you know, back to the, you know, we were just chatting about sort of millennials and the future of the workforce. I thought it was interesting that um, Katie brought up how the, the report actually addresses explicitly how trucking companies are thinking about ways, how do they attract millennials to be a part of this workforce? Um electrification and as we were discussing this sort of social and environmental responsibility piece of industries obviously is important to generations that that are seeking to align with those values but you know apparently they're using gaming interfaces and other creative ways of attracting um, talent and young, uh, younger workforce which is something frankly I hadn't thought about but but certainly makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that either. But if you think about what you know, where the dashboards and cars have just gone from over the last ten years, it is quite. I never really thought about it in that way before either. But a good, great point. I'm glad you brought that one up. Um, so for those of you looking for the story, it's where it makes sense for fleets to go electric. I encourage you to take a look at that and to, to click over to the report by um, NASFE and uh, or NACFE. And and I think they're, they're, they did that report in collaboration with the Rocky Mountain Institute. And Heather, Heather, the one other thing for which I'll, I'll make a quick plug um, is that we are uh, uh, as part of our Verge 18 conference and the summit series that um, I've spent much of my time really helping to um, build and, and lead the last couple of years, um, we will be, as part of our Verge Transport Conference, convening a fleet electrification summit. So for those of you listeners who are either working in that space or work with companies that have fleets that are looking to go electric or are electric curious, um, keep in mind the Fleet Electrification Summit, which we will be convening as part of Verge 18 here in Oakland in October. I love that. Electric curious. And I'm glad you brought that up. I wasn't sure if you were ready to talk about it yet, so I'm glad you did. Thank you. It is. We are. And yes, we actually do have at least high-level information available now on the Verge 18 website, and we are working hard behind the scenes to get more of that information public uh, later this month. Okay. So what are you reading? 
Uh, lots of great articles this week, and I often think in thinking through the Verge lens since I spend much of my time um, thinking about Verge. But one story that stood out to me was this industrial symbiosis piece by, let me give her credit. Lillian. Lillian Childress. Yes. So industrial symbiosis, it's a, it's a concept that I think I had heard vaguely of. It certainly makes sense, but it, it was just fantastic to do a deeper read and, and to understand the extent to which this is really taking root and scaling, certainly across Europe and, and hopefully further. So for basic definition, industrial symbiosis is in effect the, the, a method of creating cooperation between companies. So the waste streams from one company become the raw materials for another. And this is, again, in the context of industrial processes. And so that can involve everything from sharing infrastructure, sharing services, logistics, or other kinds of you know, operational processes that, a la the essential definition of symbiosis, produces a mutually beneficial outcome or, or relationship. And I was blown away to read that in Europe through this initiative called the EU Horizon 2020 initiative, um, it's basically a massive R&D program. There's $97 billion of funding that has been made available over um, basically over a seven-year period that's all focused on finding, you know, basically identifying and supporting new channels of in effect, stimulating what's really circular economy practices across manufacturing in Europe. And in, spent the, in the article, she talked a little bit about this one project called SCALER, uh, which is an acronym, of course, Scaling European Resources, um, which is really focused on this specifically. So facilitating the growth of, of industrial symbiosis across, in, across industries in Europe, which I think is, is also a really interesting piece. They're now working to identify, I think, a thousand um, potential industrial synergies, is what they call them, um, across 30 different, different regions in, I think, 500 industrial sites. So that's, I mean, that's scale, and I suppose a poignant name for the initiative itself, Scaler. One thing that I thought was interesting uh, was um, just sort of talking about language. Um, she pointed out the extent to which this is still a relatively nascent landscape, and, you know, companies have to be speaking the same language in order to create symbiosis or work together. So she, she you know, made an acronym, I can trade you these oranges for these apples, only when we both agree that those are oranges and those are apples. So actually, you know, having standards, having shared language for what we're talking about um, in these contexts, standard definitions of best practices of materials, I think is going to be a really important part of, of, of ultimately seeing this scale. And, and hopefully we do, because it seems like a lot of, of potential and certainly an exciting um, circular solution. Yeah. So, so my two big takeaways from this, um, I appreciated... Um, a lot of the things that, that uh, she specifically wrote about in Europe. But I just want to point out that um, there's a lot going on in China, right? So eco factories and so forth. So this same approach um, is being uh, really um, looked at carefully in China, where a lot of the manufacturing infrastructure is, of course, in place for the multinationals here in you know, many of them based back here in the United States. And what I would love to see, I'm just going to put my little wish out there is as the, you know, as the United States starts rethinking how to re-engage and become a manufacturing, um, you know, powerhouse again, 
that maybe, just maybe, if we if we think about things in this context, um, that this could be a very powerful way to, um, you know, leapfrog. You know, you always talk about, um, you know, the ability. When I love this example is um, Europe. One of the reasons they were earliest to mobile phones is because. They didn't have as good of a land infrastructure, you know, landline infrastructure as the United States did. So they were able to leap over us um, and get to to wireless mobility a little bit more quickly. By the same token, maybe, um, you know, since we have not been investing in manufacturing over the last, you know, decade or two and doing a lot of offshoring, maybe this is a chance to to leapfrog in terms of the symbiosis and and the the really great um, circular manufacturing approaches that we need to, to come into play. I love that idea, Heather, of leapfrogging, and I'll, I'll plant that as a little bug in my colleague Lauren's ear, who's driving our Verge Circular programming as well, to make sure that we explore some of the technologies and, and kind of partnerships that are working to hopefully enable that. So the last story I want to plug, I think both of us agreed that we, we thought this is a compelling article um, by our friend Sula Beck um, with Cool City Challenge, uh, and it's called Toward a Playbook for Public private partnership. This is something we talk about a lot, right? Public-private partnerships, this is what it's going to take, and, and, and we, we, it's very clear that that thesis is true. But what does it take to actually come up with a good collaboration? So um, Sue has a series that she's starting um, with this article um, to, that discusses, you know, how to pull these together, everything from a very formally structured, um, you know, platform. So like, these companies have a, a joint operating agreement, um, a memorandum of, of understanding, um, and so forth. Two things that are le- like a little uh, looser, um, and she's she's uh, she's defined several here, um, which I, I think I'll just point out because I, I think it it just helps you think about this a little bit more deeply. For me, the difference between operating partnerships, right? So um, there's there's not that much changing from what's what's been happening already. Um, there's just maybe some some closer coordination. Advisory committees, of course, we are very familiar with those. Um, that's where we we talk about what we need and 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 how how uh, things happening in one industry can get into another industry and how how do we get in innovation uh, more into a regulated industry, et cetera. Project partnerships, right? So really specific um, bounded efforts. I love that. Um, and strategic partnerships, right? So you're, where you're seeing an t- entirely new venture or operation startup because of um, some kind of strategic uh, intent that two, two or more organizations have without, you know, being able to do it on their own. So love your thoughts on, on, on you know, I know you spend a lot of time in the city, the world of cities, thinking about this. So I'm curious, you know, what, what struck you from this particular article, um, that you see happening, playing out in the marketplace. Yeah, well, I think I agree that sort of the the synthesis and starting to see more more sort of language and lexicon infrastructure being brought to the P three the public private partnership um, landscape is super helpful because it's it's easy to think broadly and generally about it. And I think the more that we can sort of be standardizing how we are approaching it is is super helpful. I love just the examples that that Sue gave in in the piece and. It was great to hear too that that being at Green Biz eighteen, actually our our big event in Phoenix this February was a, a valuable time. I knew Sue, Sue participated in a session and brought a lot of folks together. But there are some just some great examples of of companies that are starting to um, 
starting and have been for a while now working to advance some of these. But on the city piece, um, since you brought it up, you know, I, I, I think one thing that stood out to me was this idea of partnership generating platforms, which is something I've been tracking a little bit in Vision Charlotte, I think is sort of the darling of this space. And for good reason, you know, they're based in North Carolina. It started as just a, um, a, a one project and was so uh, so valuable that it has now become a, a deeply strategic part of the entire city's um, uh, uh, planning and, and process. And so I just think it's to the extent that everyone can sort of agree that, well, yes, public-private partnerships are great and necessary in order to enable the kind of infrastructure and the financing that's going to be needed to um, you know, unlock all the sustainability and business opportunities and social, for that matter, of um, smart cities of the future. Um, it's really important to step back and think about what is the role of partnership generating platforms in doing that in, in, in terms of really helping to be that bridge in a way. And I think, frankly, in some ways, even though this isn't explicitly the stated goal of Verge, that is a big part of what, what our, our mission is with, with that in-person convening itself, is to get folks together who have opportunities to be working together better but may not be t- otherwise talking to each other. So I think as we move forward and, and hopefully see more and more public-private partnerships, um, the opportunities arising, there will be more players like Envision Charlotte, like now Envision Utah. Urbanova is another one in Kansas City, KCMO Smart City Platform, just organizations that are, are really serving as that neutral or intermediary party to help um, synergize where, where there are synergies to be made. So look for more installments in this series. As Shauna mentioned earlier, we're starting to gear up for our Verge events. First up is Verge Hawaii, the Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit in just a few short weeks. And a core component of our ongoing Verge conferences is the Accelerate program, which gives entrepreneurs a chance to pitch from the main stage to a live and global online audience of potential investors. Uh, And I was was amazed to learn that we featured more than 120 startups since we started the initiative back in 2012. So Shauna, uh, this is your baby, (laughs) and and you've been involved since the beginning. Um, What can you tell us about some of the past entrepreneurs who have graced our stage? Ah, past entrepreneurs. Yeah. Well, um, it it was actually remarkable for me, too, as I was... um, just setting aside the time to, to, to put together this story, announcing the 10 finalists that are partic- have been selected for our cohort at Verge Hawaii, actually doing the math and realizing, wow, 120, that's a lot. And, you know, it's amazing because as I'm out in the world, um, you know, interacting with folks and reconnecting with people, um, it's amazing the stories that come back full circle. I Just last week, I was at an event and this young woman came up to me and she was like, I participated in Accelerate back in 2014 and, you know, we got an investor out of that event and I mentioned in, in my article that there was a team that, that actually is no longer as is the nature of the startup landscape, but coming out of their participation and at Verge um, in, I think, 2012 or 2013, Amory Lovins d- joined their advisory board. So it's like, you know, there's these amazing stories. And just in um, in Hawaii, I was just interacting with a, 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 an investor who's interested in potentially coming, who mentioned that they invested in one of the startups that they saw on stage last year. So it's not always easy to measure the kinds of outcomes and 
as is the nature of the startup landscape. They come and they go, but um, it's been really exciting to see how, as I mentioned in the article, um, you know, Jelly was just a little baby when they first, at the energy storage company, when they pitched, I think in 2012, and now they have over 15 million in funding and are really scaling and, and, and growing quickly. So it's nice to be reminded that the work that we're doing to really um, elevate these entrepreneurs and connect them with potential partners and investors, you know, it's working. So what do you, you know, when you, you probably get a lot of applications, I'm just curious, how do you vet them? Like, what is it that you're looking for? Yeah, we have a number of different criteria, um, you know, we actually, I think it was a couple a couple of years ago that we evolved from a written application to a 60-second video nomination, um, which is in part helpful for our judging committee because we get a sense of, okay, is this person comfortable, um, you know, delivering their pitch, you know, speaking to, speaking to an audience, do they have their pitch tight? Obviously, one of the core factors is, you know, is this a viable solution? Is this something that the audience who comes to Verge, you know, that it has the potential to really address a, a need that they're facing? Is it a real commercial market opportunity? Um, so there's sort of the just essential viability and, and, and potential of the product or service itself. But, you know, the Accelerate Showcase is part of, uh, it's part of our program. And we want to make sure that the entrepreneurs who we're inviting on stage are going to be compelling presenters. And so that's certainly something we look for as well, as well as diversity. And I mean diversity of the solutions themselves. So mapping across the systemic nature of what we look at at Verge, but also the gender and ethnic diversity of the people who are coming so that who are um, who we're selecting so that um, there's a nice uh, representation of people from from all around the world who are working as innovators in the clean economy. Okay, you did mention there's 10 10 companies on deck for Virtuai and I and uh, I'll point people to the story we did write about them online and uh, you wrote about them. Um, but can you give us a sneak peek? Um, like I don't know, see Matt, were there any themes or or, or um, particularly unusual solutions that uh, showed up in this group? Yeah, let's see. Um, well, on the unusual solution front, I'll say the one that I'm most excited to hear from that's um, out of the box uh, is, let's see, their their tagline, or at least what I pulled from, from spending some time on their site, Transit X is unpaving the way to go car-free. They are literally a 100% solar-powered transportation network of flying solar pods. They've got this vision of basically addressing congestion and pollution in cities by creating a network of solar pods that basically help enable mobility in a way that's quiet and safe and, and uh, resilient, integrates into existing urban infrastructure. So that's going to be an interesting one. Um, in the energy space, I'm really excited about Alum Energy, um, which is their uh, started by two student graduates from the University of Melbourne, and it has a um, really an, a nice equity and access fo focus. It was started around the goal of extending the benefits of solar to people who didn't previously have access, starting in rural indigenous communities. They're now scaling and looking to get into, um, into commercial markets. Um, and one other that's interesting, because I'm actually working a lot on the Sustainable Tourism Summit these days, which maybe we'll talk about next week, um, 
But Signal is an interesting company, also actually part of the Energy Accelerator or Elemental Accelerator uh, program. And they're on a mission to tackle carbon emissions, starting with the airline industry. So they're using behavioral science to basically frame and deliver real-time information to decision makers, to pilots that basically analyzes fuel consumption and gives real-time feedback to help um, enable greater efficiency. So those are a couple I'm excited about. Yeah, and I'm I'm just looking here. I hover. That's cool. Like an urban wind um, energy uh, option, which I would love to hear more about. So anyway, lot, plenty, plenty here. I'm excited for this this uh, this class of accelerate um, uh, applicants, finalists. Um, and okay, I don't mean to push you, and and I know Virtuai hasn't even happened. <laughs> but is there anything you can tell us about the accelerate program for our big? Verge 18 event this October. Like, do we have the nomination uh, call for nominations out yet? What, what's going on with that? Ah, thanks for asking. Fortunately, no. We're getting to one event at a time, although we are always building in parallel. One thing I am really excited about, actually, for Verge 18, um, you know, we're, we're making a pretty big evolution in the structure of our flagship Verge event this year, focusing in on what we see as three of the most influential and dynamic markets in the clean economy by actually producing three concurrent conferences as part of the broader Verge event. So that'll be Verge Energy, Verge Transport, and Verge Circular. And so as part of that evolution, we're going to be evolving our Accelerate program as well. Traditionally, we've done two pitch sessions, and it's been sort of a Verge mashup. You've got ag solutions next to distributed energy solutions next to circular economy solutions and building infrastructure solutions. But this year, we're going to really kind of plant a flag in each one of those areas and do a deep dive. So we're going to have an accelerate session specifically on circular economy solutions, one on energy in the most inclusive and systemic sense, and one focused on transportation. So we haven't launched the call for nominations yet. We'll be doing that um, in the next month or two, but I am I am really excited about the opportunity that hopefully that will afford for entrepreneurs who are you know deep in those spaces and also the investors and potential corporate partners who are coming who may be interested in piloting or certainly investing in some of those um, vertical specific solutions. Guido Jure may have the coolest job in Silicon Valley. As chief digital officer for ABB, he leads digital strategy for a 130-year-old power and automation technology company that is adding digital infrastructure to the world's energy and transportation systems. Guido recently chatted with GreenBiz Research Director and Senior Analyst Paul Karp. I've invited Paul to share some of his impressions from the interview. Paul, first, thanks for joining us on this week's podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me, Heather. So, first, can you fill us in on the sorts of projects that ABB is working on? You know, where do they really fit in the low-carbon energy transition? Sure. Well, you know, first, Guido came into our office a couple of weeks ago and really kind of put on his evangelist hat. And so was talking about some of the different projects in energy and transportation that ABB is working on. And what was interesting is that a lot of these projects were really, ABB was really behind the scenes. We really didn't, hadn't heard about a lot of these projects. These are transformational bus charging infrastructure projects or smart grid or smart building projects. And it was really interesting to hear him open up and really talk about how the digital wave is, is changing the way that ABB does business. So what kind of challenges are they trying to tackle? So, you know, can you give me an example? 
Yeah, one one project that was really interesting that he talked about was a fast charging uh, bus. Uh, infrastructure project in Europe, and so this is a this is kind of a, a an arm that comes and charges, uh, you know, city buses, and it it does it in the time that it takes the bus to stop and load up passengers, and it does this kind of throughout the route, but it doesn't require a giant battery on the on the bus, and it really is a super efficient and fast way of charging buses. So, what other digital disruption uh, potential are they working on? Yeah, you know, I, that's a good segue. Why don't we turn over to Guido and let's hear his thoughts on some of the markets that, that they're working to disrupt. In some sense, what we believe is that there's a major challenge around how will these technology innovations potentially create new sources of value and who will capture those sources of value? Will it be our customers? Will it be us? Will it be new intermediaries? You can imagine that companies might come in and say, you know, I can do predictive monitoring on your assets, even though I don't make these assets. I do it better than the people who made them. Let me tell you why. Now, at the same time, I think it's easy to exaggerate a little bit the disruption potential, which is unlike in consumer, where people don't mind replacing their phones every two years. In the industrial space, people tend to be fairly loyal to their assets and they last a long time. There's a lot of know-how expended in maintaining these assets. So as a result, uh, the incumbents, the the companies that make the assets, have some inherent advantages, but that doesn't mean that we should be complacent. I think on the one hand, these technology innovations are so disruptive. uh, You only have to look at the impact of AI, driverless cars, things like that, to to just imagine the impact of technology on the automobile industry, for example. We see a potentially similar impact in the electricity or energy sector, uh, certainly industry 4.0, automation of factories. All of that creates new opportunities, potential threats to existing businesses, uh, the ability for new entrants to come into these markets as well, to try and become intermediaries, to try and separate companies like us that make things from the customers who buy them. So I think all of those are potentially there. And... What I would say is probably the biggest challenge is that standing still or doing nothing is not an option. That is pretty clear. So essentially, if you do not embrace these digital technologies and make them work for you, somebody else will, and they'll either use that against you, or what will happen is that digital capability becomes the new normal, the new expected part of a product or service. And you wouldn't do without it. I mean, today, if somebody tries to sell you a smartphone and it doesn't do GPS navigation, you'd probably send it back. You would say, I'm sorry, but that's now expected that that's what my phone should do. Go back 10 years and most phones did not do that. You'd had a separate GPS unit if you had one or nothing. So as the digital wave progresses, uh, we embrace it because it's become the new normal, because it creates new opportunities, and because it also creates new threats. And I think it's all of the above. You know, so I'm, I'm fascinated by, like, the sorts of technologies that ABB is involved with. So, like, can, what, what things have his attention? You know, what, what does he think will be really aiding with, with this cause? Sure. What was really interesting is that, you know, Guido talked a lot about the cool toys that consumers are seeing in the marketplace. So things like drones and artificial intelligence and, you know, sort of the B2C interesting toys that are out there. But what was interesting is he talked a lot about the ROI in the industrial space and how some of these transformational digital tools, things like blockchain, drones, can really transform the industrial market. So 
But what I'm most excited about is the fact that all of these cool consumer technologies, in fact, if you go back and look at the last 15 years, the, the forefront of technology innovation has been the consumer. Smartphones, broadband, augmented reality, AI, blockchain, drones, all of the cool toys went to the consumer. However, as much as they were developed there and they came from there, the reality is that in the consumer space, a lot of these things don't really have a great ROI or business case. Like, if I, do, if I uh, you know, blockchain is a good example. Blockchain, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, is it really a store of value or is it more just a speculative bubble? Who knows? But in the industrial space, blockchain is hugely interesting. It's about a distributed ledger we could use in supply chain and shipping and electricity markets. So, again, the same for drones. We can use drones for sensing uh, and sniffing out methane gas along pipelines. We can use it to inspect buildings. We can use it to inspect wind turbines way up high. All of these will be better for employee safety, productivity, all of those things. So, take any one of those consumer technologies, and there's a fantastic ROI multiple use cases right now in the industrial space. So in some sense, I feel a little bit like a kid in a supermarket where I've got these wonderful technologies that I can have at my fingertips at a power and a price point that was just inconceivable even a few years ago. And we can apply them to jobs that are dirty, difficult, or dangerous uh, and achieve a wonderful ROI for our customers. So that's I think the great, uh, the thing that's super thrilling, and maybe as a part B to that, which is, and we're doing this not because we think it's cool, we're doing this because our customers are pushing us to say, like, we want these capabilities. So we're not pushing a rock uphill here. We're, we're essentially responding to very strong customer demand. Customers are eager in the industrial space to embrace these new technologies. Okay, Paul, I want to just explore one more thing with you, data privacy, right? Uh, given the heightened focus on some pretty big mistakes that have been recently made by Silicon Valley, like here's looking at you, Facebook, I'm curious, how does the issue of privacy apply for the business-to-business -business and industrial applications that ABB is working on? Sure. Well, like you mentioned, Heather, this is top of mind. And one of the things that was interesting is that Guido talked about how they really try to be very transparent and open with their customers and how they use their data. And, you know, it's sort of a different approach in the industrial space, but I thought it was really refreshing to hear a company kind of talk about, you know, the, the idea that they're using customers' data, they're open with it, and, you know, sort of have a, a set of guidelines that they use with their customers on, on what they're going to do with that data. So I don't think that Silicon Valley have been paying attention, enough attention to privacy. Uh, now, in the industrial world, what is called privacy and consumer is often rephrased as, data ownership slash intellectual property protection. Because if you think about it, Facebook offers its service to consumers. As an industrial company, most of our portfolio is actually to other businesses. So we don't have much in terms of direct consumer contact. Um, however, that doesn't mean that data privacy and data ownership are not concerns. And I think most companies haven't actually formulated a response to that. And I think that is one of the reasons why the industrial customers have been a little bit hesitant because as they think about the cloud and putting data into the cloud, they actually have concerns about this. They, they say, well, are we teaching others our business? Are we sharing data from our customers that we don't want to share? And to get ahead of that, 
uh, I'd like to pretend we had a crystal ball, but I think in some ways we were lucky. About a year ago, we published an article in Forbes online, which is titled uh, The Data Manifesto for IoT. And it's an article I wrote where essentially what I try to do was look to examples in industry, other industries, that had faced similar kind of challenges in terms of data or customer service or both. And I took two sources of inspiration. One was in the Healthcare Information Privacy Act in the U.S., HIPAA. And the second was from the Passenger Bill of Rights for the airlines. And from HIPAA, what we took away was this whole concept of spelling out what kind of data is the most sensitive. In this case, the patient identity is the most sensitive. But oftentimes, researchers and others want to use the, the measurement data, like your blood pressure or blood sugar levels or whatever else they're measuring. But in order to not expose who that was, you essentially anonymize the data. You say, well, this measurement was from patient XYZ. So the way we actually build our ABB Ability Digital Solutions, we've implemented in our platform a data protection API that essentially forces our developers to build our applications in that way. We separate customer identity data from customer measurement data. Uh, we also make it very clear that when a customer chooses no longer to be a customer, that we will commit to removing all of their data. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organizations, stories, and events mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, which features the best of live interviews from some of the events we've already mentioned here. Hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Greenbiz. 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Heather Clancy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>